Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good morning. It is Friday, January 11th, 2013, and I cannot believe that this month is almost half over. We are so blessed today uh, to have a return visitor uh, and, and friend, Erica Anderson. And Erica has been with us uh, on the show before talking about uh, strategy. And now the topic today is going to be all about leadership. And she has written a fascinating book called Leading So People Will Follow. This book came out in October. And Erica, welcome back. Thank you. It's lovely to be here again. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you know many of our, our members at the Executive Girlfriends Group are familiar with you from the work that you did uh, on, on the book on strategy, which we uh, delved into quite deeply. Uh, that book was called Being Strategic, Plan for Success. And uh, so why don't you talk to us a little bit about you personally, you know, kind of what was your background before you uh, started writing books? I know you've done a lot of that, and you've got a, a consulting firm as well. Yeah, I well, I could go, you know, all the way back to childhood, but I won't. Um, about, I started. Oh, you my you business. can though. <laughs> the nice thing about this show is people actually do care about this. <laughs> well, I was born in Omaha. I um, I started my company in 1990, and I'd been in this sort of training and consulting field, working for other people for about 10 years, and I really wanted to start my own company because I was just talking to someone about this the other day. I, the companies I worked for, I saw that they're, even though they were good companies, that mostly their relationship with their clients was a sort of vendor relationship. And I really wanted to have what has become very popular, but 23 years ago was kind of a new idea, more of a partner, a business partner relationship. I really, I wanted to have a company where people would come to us and say, can you help us be ready as leaders for the future? Can you help us figure out the future we want to, create for ourselves either individually or organizationally and then make a plan to get there, gain the skills to get there. So that's that's how that's how Proteus got started. And we have three practice areas um, to help people get ready and stay ready for their future. The first one we call Strengthening Leaders. And uh, the new book is that now we have a book kind of that associates with each practice area, but the new book, Leading So People Will Follow, is is some core IP for that area. And then we have um, a practice area called Clarifying Vision and Strategy, and the book you mentioned, Being Strategic, is a lot of the core IP for that area. And then we have a practice area that we call Building Skills and Knowledge. It's the training part of our business. We focus on management and leadership development. And my first book, Growing Great Employees, is a, is a lot of the core intellectual property in that area. And uh, so we've you know, had the business, been growing it for 23 years. It's growing, grown quite quickly in the last three or four years. And uh, and now we have these three books to help, and it's great. It's going really well. Well, that's excellent. And, you know, what a great framework for uh, for taking people through how to grow their businesses because I've, I've found the same thing, although I don't have much of an emphasis on consulting anymore as, uh, you know, it used to be my core day job. Uh, but that part of my firm um, has become one of those things that, like, if a friend will call and ask me to do a consulting project, I'll do it, but I'm not out 
uh, aggressively pursuing it. I've turned my my attention to um, what I, I have a new word for it from my last radio show. I am uh, now. I realize I'm a philanthropeneur. So taking, oh, what a great word! <laughs> taking business um, and and helping people take their core businesses and figure out how they can give back uh, from their core. Wow, business. that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and and Erica, it it came out of what a lot of entrepreneurs go through is, you know, you work and you work and you work. And and I was quite successful in my consulting firm and had built a great name with Solutions Group. And I just got burned out. And, Mm. you know, I got to a place where I thought, you know, is this all there is? And I never said those words out loud, but I realized everything in me was screaming that. And and so I just had to sit back and say, okay, you know, what tools do I need moving forward to do something different? But I knew I wanted to leave a legacy. And being a good leader is, is part of that legacy, but I never got the opportunity to really run a company. And that that's what my heart's yeah. desire was. And, you know, I kept starting companies, but I would turn them over to management teams. And, you know, the... Well, and, and, and as I'm listening to you, I, that's one of the wonderful things in the growth of produce over the last you know, 23 years, I've really, I was just talking about this to some of my colleagues the other day. One of the core things we really focus on is practicing what we preach, that we we don't, we never tell our clients to do things that we have not sincerely tried to do ourselves, you know, which right. I think, unfortunately, a lot of larger consulting companies don't do that. And, and so one of the things in uh, all the lessons that I've tried to help others learn in management and leadership, I, I've, you know, tried them out first on myself and and so I really think that one of the reasons I, I don't feel burned out and that I feel still excited about doing this after 23 years is that I'm surrounded by wonderful, really wonderful, smart, engaging people. We're There are 20 of us now. We just are hiring our 20th person at Podius. Oh, wow. And, and uh, you know, so I really have to do this. I really have to manage and yeah. lead. And, and uh, you know, so I, I like to think that everything that shows up in my books is stuff that I can honestly say, yeah, I, I, I try to do this myself, and, and it works. Yeah, definitely. Know? And, you know, it's interesting because I, I took a different path. Uh, I, I, yeah. I was as large as you are, but I used only contractors. So, you know, when a project mm. was over, I didn't have a bench of people that I had to find work for. Right. And, right. you know, I when I do a project now, I'm still excited about that project. But if every day I had to get up and, you know, go out and, you know, kill the beast and and you know clean it and and serve it up. Uh, you know, you that, that do doesn't. That. Yeah. Well, it just it it doesn't jazz me. And and you know, I think one yeah. of the things. Uh, and hopefully uh, here here soon we will get into talking about the book. Um, but the thing about leadership is, you know, you have to know when uh, the track you're on needs to be adjusted. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of companies and certainly a lot of leaders within those companies just keep going with the status quo because either of a risk aversion by investors or uh, the investment community if they're a publicly traded company. And they don't get that opportunity that we entrepreneurs get, which says, you know what, this isn't working, and we scrap it and we start something new. You know, and, mm-hmm. and we can get something new operational in a matter of days and weeks, you know, whereas companies changing gears, they don't have that same benefit. So let's let's talk about and I love the first chapter of this book, The Longing yeah. for Good Leaders. 
Um, I have longed to have good leaders in my life. I have longed to be a good leader. And, you know, we we just keep getting in our own way uh, quite Mm -hmm. often. So tell me about this chapter. Well, I, I, I wanted really in the first chapter to tap into something that I think is very sort of deep and ancient. And, and, uh, and you know from reading the book that this is the kind of direction I went. When I, when I first started thinking, you know, we all know, okay, there's leaders, there's people who have the job, there's the boss, there's whatever. But I really started thinking about leadership in a different way. It's almost, almost 20 years ago now, in the early to mid-90s. I was um, starting, you know, my business had started to take off, Proteus, and I, and I was starting to work with C-level people for the first time pretty consistently. And I began to notice this really interesting phenomenon where I would be in a room with uh, once, and, and I talk about this particular instance in the book, there were, I was in a room with about 35 people, all of whom were the senior most people in a fairly good-sized company, and they were listening to the CEO speak. And they were all, you know, reasonably attentive. Nobody was walking out of the room or, you know, sleeping. And they were all listening, more or less. But I noticed that most of the people in the room, every once in a while as this person was speaking, would sort of glance at this other guy who happened to be the CFO, just as though they were looking to see his reaction. And then after the, after the meeting, I noticed that just one by one and not by any conscious intention, people would sort of drift by his office and stop in, and, and I kind of went over there, and what they were trying to do was get his take on what the CEO had said. And this was very interesting to me, and I started to think, okay, so they're in this situation, and I've seen it a lot, but this sort of catalyzed it for me. There's the guy, there's what I came to think of as the appointed leader. There was this guy who had the CEO job. He had the big corner office with a you know, title on the door and stuff. And then there was this other guy who they were clearly, everybody was, almost everybody was clearly treating as the real leader. So I started to think, okay, so there's appointed leaders, but then there are accepted leaders. There are the leaders that people say, this person feels like a leader. I am really going to kind of align around this person. And I started to think, wow, what is that? What's, what's that about? And so the more I thought about it, I thought, well, you know, since the dawn of time, we've had leaders. And until a couple of hundred years ago, who you chose to be your leader, that was a life and death decision. I mean, if you chose badly, you're much more likely to starve or get killed by the enemy or whatever. So I started to think, wow, maybe we have some wiring, some deep and now almost unconscious wiring about who is safe to align with, who is safe to commit to. And so that's kind of what led me down the path that ultimately resulted in this model and then this book. It's like looking for that, what, what is it in us that longs for leaders and what is that wiring in us that, if you think about it, is deeply wired as a group survival mechanism to, to say, this person feels like a leader. I will line up behind him or her. I will, I will commit myself to, to him or her. Right. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, I mean, I, I've seen that same phenomenon and... Uh, it, it is interesting how the un, uh, unofficial uh, organization uh, wow. presents itself, speci- uh, and, and we see this especially as consultants coming in from the outside, where people absolutely. Are- I think a lot of times it's easier for us to see it because we're not right. sort of uh, diluted by the trappings of success. We notice, oh wow, okay. So, and, and there's a there's such a difference between, you know, you can work for somebody but not really be a follower of them. It's like, okay, I'm not going to quit. I've got my job. They're okay. They're not terrible. Right. But then right. sometimes you see people were, I mean, I, some of the leaders especially, you know, you know I, I had the opportunity, which was a wonderful opportunity for me to, uh, in a way, pay tribute to a dozen leaders, the 12 leaders that I profiled in the book as, you know, having these qualities that I, I selected 12 leaders and 
to pick two free statistics qualities I point out. And it, with a lot of these leaders, especially people would, the people who work for them, they would walk through fire. They're, they really have followers. They have people who look to that person and say, I'm with you. Let's go. Let's do this. It's, it's true, you know, true following. And uh, that was just fascinating to me when I started to look at it. Well, and I'm, as most of the folks who listen to this show with any uh, frequency know, I'm a sucker for a book cover. And, and your book has um, uh, geese who are, are flying in the traditional V formation. But instead of uh, one of the geese just happening to be at the front, uh, and most who have watched geese fly know that quite often they'll, they'll actually change position as they're flying. This one is in red, <laughs> and mm-hmm. it is different. And uh, you know that that distinction is is. Uh, I, I would love to know how this this graphic evolved. Well, it was a wonderful process, actually. We, I, the the guy who is the head creative director for Joseph Dash, my publisher, Adrian Morgan. We had a wonderful dialogue about this. He. It's actually, if you look at it closely, they're actually hummingbirds. They're actually not geese. And oh, I, I see. said, oh, you know, right. I, I, I really, I love this idea of birds flying in formation, and uh, and I love it. In fact, because of the what you said that you know when birds fly in formation, they don't. It's not always the same person, <laughs> the same bird in front. They sort of trade off so that they don't get too tired. But the per the Bird in front is different, is unique. Does have that they they break the air. They they they're the point of the wedge, you know. And so I wanted to communicate that in a kind of stylized way. And and Adrian said, well, let's not use geese then, or let's not let's use something a little odd and whimsical just to kind of catch people's eye. And he came up with this graphic, which I really love. And the other thing I love about the cover, cover of the book is when I, as as you know, Chicky, because you do this so much, it has become absolutely de rigueur to have. Um, Subtitles in business books, and my wonderful editor at Josie Bout, Susan Williams, I said when we right after they bought the book, when we were first talking about it, I said, Susan, do we really have to have a subtitle? I mean, this is so self-explanatory. And she said, You're right, it's completely self-explanatory. It looks so great, just have a simple cover. So the cover is just leading so people will follow Erica Anderson, and then this wonderful little stylized, you know, wedge of hummingbirds, and and I love it because that's. It's what the book is about. You know, it's very clearly that's the point. Why do we have to, you know, say more? Absolutely. Well, you know, as as I move on through the book, um, you know, Erica, you're such a great storyteller, and that that's the oh. one thing I remember from your your strategy book that sticks out so much in my mind. Of of you, you really paint a picture with words uh, in a very very important way. And so the next chapter in this book is firesides and folk tales. And I'm quite sure that there is a story behind this. There is a story behind it. So, so that's the next place I went. So, as I was noticing this interesting phenomenon about the what I came to call, as I said, accepted versus appointed leaders, and and was beginning to get this sense of wow, this is wiring. We we are we have a wired in a deep deep need to to select good leaders and really sign up with them. At the same time, my kids were little. My kids who are now grown are were little, and I was um, reading them fairy stories, as you do, and I really tried to read them stories from all over the world, and so as I was reading them these stories and thinking about this thing I was thinking about with leaders, I started to notice that in pretty much every culture in the world, there is uh, the leader story, and we all know it. We've all read it or had it read to us or read it to our kids. There's some kind of a quest. There's a princess to be rescued or a monster to be slain, and there are three brothers, right, who are given the opportunity to to achieve this feat. 
and the two eldest always fail in really spectacular and pretty predictable ways. And then the youngest one, who no one believes in at the beginning because he's sitting in the rags by the fire, he goes through what I came to see as I read dozens of these, a, a pretty consistent set of trials that where he has to uh, demonstrate or develop and then demonstrate these characteristics so that by the end of the story he can win the princess, slay the dragon, become the king, and we all live you know, happily ever after. <laughs> and so as I was reading these stories, I thought, oh, maybe this is the code. Maybe Because if I back away from that for a minute, stories are critical. Stories, you know, I'm a huge fan of history and human history. So if you think about it, until very, very recently in our history, most people couldn't read. And so stories were, were the most important and easiest way to pass along critical information. Uh, to, to tell the story of Little Red Riding Hood is a much better way to keep kids out of the forest than just a kind of dry recitation of, you know, the facts of the number of kids who have gotten eaten by wolves, you know. So stories are easily replica replicable. They're memorable. They're a great way to pass along information in a pre-literate society. So all the important information about how to be a good human being, what not to do if you don't want to get killed, and I began to think, how to find a good leader. So I started to think, okay, well, maybe these leader stories are saying, in effect, don't sign up with somebody, don't accept someone as your leader unless they demonstrate these characteristics. If somebody operates like this, they're likely to be to be a wise and just king or queen and we'll all live happily ever after. So I read, you know, I was reading a lot of stories already, but then I started to do it consciously and I gathered stories from all over the world and read probably literally hundreds of stories. And the pattern was so consistent that I was able to extract these six characteristics, which I started thinking of as the accepted leader or the followable leader characteristics. And then in about 1996, I think, I, I began to sort of try them out with leaders, and it was just fascinating because they just went right in. It was, it was, it was funny. The very first guy I shared these with, who, who ended up being one of the leaders that I profiled in the book, he's a wonderful guy, I kind of gave him the backstory I just gave you, and then I said, here are the six characteristics, and sort of stepped back. And he, he just picked them up and started playing with them in such a way that it made me feel like, okay, I have, I've gotten, I've, I've hit on something primal. It didn't, it didn't go through his front brain, you know. It just was like, oh, yeah, okay, well, I'm pretty good at this, and this woman who works for me, she's having a hard time. Wow, she's not very good at this and this, and how can I help her develop these characteristics? And that, for the last 15 years, that's pretty much how people have responded to it. I, I do think that we did a pretty good job of, of finding these core characteristics that people look for, consciously or unconsciously, before they decide whether or not to follow somebody. Right, and it's funny that you describe the reaction as primal, because as I was reading through them, which they're uh, far-sighted, passionate, courageous, wise, generous, and trustworthy. And, yeah. and you know, no, it's not a description of, of a Boy Scout, but, you know, <laughs> it, it is so funny. I, I felt that these were very male, um, mm. and not that women don't have them. I mean, because clearly we do. But do you find a different reaction from men than women when you go through this list? Very interesting. I do not. And and as you as you will have noticed, the, the of the 12 leaders I profile, it's half and half, and I didn't do that intentionally. They're just the leaders that I know who have who really demonstrate these characteristics. That's interesting. I've never, I, I mean, everybody obviously has their own reaction, but I've, 
I've never uh, I've never had anyone say that that they felt male. Well, I, I guess it's because again the stories that you're talking about the the uh, you know whether they're parables or whatever they're they're usually fairly male dominated and, and you're yes, right. Yes, and that is true. That's a really good point. And I actually um, uh, there's a there are a couple of caveats in the book when I when I I created in the second chapter I created a kind of frame story that is just. Uh, it's like all the stories that we've read, but I just I, I wrote it specifically to call out these six characteristics. And I say, you know, these stories are traditionally, because most traditional societies are more patriarchal, about a young man than becoming, you know, becoming a king. But they're not all. I mean, there's some. There's the Chinese story of Mulan. There are some where the hero is a woman. Um, and and I and I even thought when I was writing the book about maybe I should change it just to open up people's minds. But then that felt kind of contrived and. So all the way through, I just, you know, I have six women leaders and six men leaders, and I and I vary the examples throughout the book. But certainly most of the historical, traditional tales are about a young man becoming the king versus a young woman becoming the queen. Well, I think the interesting thing, and, you know, again, as I look through this list, uh, you know, reflecting, uh, you know, kind of using it as a mirror against my own leadership styles, I mean, I have no problem being farsighted, in fact, I'm perhaps too far-sighted, and you know when when I start a new venture, I nearly always have to bring in someone who plays the COO or president role because I need someone, um, you know, who who can be nearsighted and and get the things done and, and execute. Um, but you know, the interesting thing I always use the analogy with the mirror on the car, where it says, you know, objects uh, are closer than they appear. Um, what I tell people when they talk to me is you have to understand the things I'm talking about are further away than you might hear them because people who are nearsighted in, in their leadership style think everything you're talking about has to be done tomorrow. Yes, and, and that let me, let me pick up on that a little bit because one of the, um, you know, you notice that, uh, so I, we, I came up with this about 15 years ago and then over the last decade and a half, have refined it and clarified it. And one of the things that we did, I think this ended up happening maybe six or seven years ago, is I realized that people needed some some markers, some behavioral indicators for each of these six, so that they knew what they were what they were like behaviorally, and then could develop toward them. So farsighted women is an interesting. Well, they're all interesting, but farsighted is interesting because I saw that the leaders who were truly farsighted kind of were able to do both of what you're saying. That if you look at the behavioral indicators for farsightedness. The first one is exactly what you're saying, being able to see possible futures. Oh, sorry, I'm in, I'm in L.A. and there's a fire somewhere. Okay. Um, so the first one is being able to see possible futures that are good for the business. That's the kind of first element of our sightedness. But then the second one is being able to articulate them in a compelling and inclusive way so that people, like you notice in these stories, whenever the kid gets help, it's because he talks about his quest to save the princess in a way that's not only compelling, it's enticing and it's meaningful, but it's inclusive. It's like you could come and do this with me. And that's what far-sighted leaders do. They talk about these possible futures in a way that makes people feel like, ooh, ooh, yeah, I, I, I want to do Let's do that together. And then the third thing is, and this is really important, I've seen it so much and I give some good examples of it in the book, they model the vision. They don't just say it and then put it on a shelf. They 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 really live it. They really ask the questions. Like if somebody says, should we do this thing, the person will say, the leader will say, well, does it really line up with the vision? Is it really going to help us move in the direction that we've set for ourselves? The fourth thing is they see past obstacles. So 
when not not that they don't recognize that they exist, but they they help people see past them. Like, don't lose, you know, keep your eye on the prize. Don't lose sight of that. We'll figure out a way around this obstacle so to get to it. And then the last one, and the really critical one I've seen for followable leaders, is they invite people to participate in the uh, execution of the of the vision. And that's when, to your point, the people who are more quote unquote nearsighted, the people who are really focused on implementation and execution, that's where they get to play and they get to feel like, oh, it's not just the leader's vision, it's all of our vision and we can get right. to it together. Right. So the next one is passionate. And again, I, I, I look at this from an entrepreneurial perspective and most entrepreneurs don't have trouble with passion. I think, you know, it's it's harder when I look at corporate leaders who maybe started out passionate, but that passion mm. has gotten squelched. And particularly with you know, the various economic uh, ups and downs that we've had, you know, from uh, September 11th to, you know, this last economic crisis and companies being cut, you know, first uh, into the muscle a little bit and then down to the bone where they really couldn't grow. You know, they uh, it was all they could do was just to survive. And I think yeah. passion suffered significantly. Uh, that's a really good point, Shecky. I think that's right. It's hard to now. Let me define my terms a little bit. So often, when people say the word passion, what they just mean is enthusiasm or charisma. They just mean kind of loudness and enthusiasm. <laughs> and and for the purposes of this book, what it means is depth of commitment. That people really want to know that their leaders aren't going to be superficial in their commitment, and they're not going to right. kind of wander off in the middle of adversity, right? So it's depth of commitment, and I agree that when times are really hard, that commitment gets tested. And, 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 and uh, passion kind of has two uh, balancing parts, real passion, that what, what, what I'm talking about that pe- people look to see in their leaders. And the first is this depth of commitment, consistency of commitment, that if that person you know, has a vision or holds values, that they're going to stay committed to them. They're not going to be easily swayed. But on the other hand, they want to know that that person is permeable, that they're not dogmatic, that they're not doctrinaire, that it's not, I'm never changing my mind no matter what new data comes in. They want to know that that person is still open to dialogue even when they feel strongly about something. Because if it goes over that line, then the person's just inflexible. You know, they're not passionate. They're just a dog, dogmatist, you know. So it's that great combination of depth of commitment plus permeability that, that people really look to see. Um, I do want to mention uh, for those listeners who have not had a chance to pick up Erica's book or, or have not seen any of her writing, um, Erica is so amazing at being able to distill down uh, very, very complex thoughts into uh, just the text of the book is very, very easy to read. She breaks oh, it up in, in really, really digestible chunks. But the other thing is she tests you and and has you envisioning what it looks like for you and there are call out boxes throughout the chapters uh, that just really help you do that and so if you're a really action oriented person and don't have a lot of patience for reading a lot of words you can (laughs) use this book just uh, as a primer uh, on each of these things and you know it's very easy to to get out of it what you need to um, I always like to mention that because not every author writes that way, Erica, and you are just so Thank instructive. You. And I know all of your years of consulting, um, you know, really make you a, a much, much better author. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And how when I 
in the books that I've written so far anyway, I always create a sort of uh, imaginary audience. Like, you know, I, I surround myself. And for this book, I had a nice little combination. I put an entrepreneur. I put a, you know, a, a young woman in her first management job. I put an older African-American guy who was a manager in a big company. I mean, I had, you know, a, a combination of five or six people right. who, to whom I was writing this book. And my my intention is always to offer clear ideas, but then, as you say, to help people actually grow, actually behave differently. And my intention is if you pick up this book and you want to become a followable leader, I, I want to help you do that, you know. Right. <laughs> so thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, the next one is an interesting choice of words because I think when people think about being a leader, they don't necessarily think about being courageous. Mm. Um, but the the very first item that you bring up here, making the tough choices, and this is what I was talking yeah. about at the beginning, sometimes you have to retire a product line or you have to fire yeah, a client exactly. who exactly. is just draining your staff. I mean, I think we exactly. all know about the tough choices of having to lay people off or yeah. having to fire yeah. somebody who isn't a good fit. But this, this is really core uh, to people being willing to follow you because – People aren't by nature courageous. They would rather someone else step up and do it if if possible. And they might well, and the way, have I, to. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and and if you look even historically, the reason people look to see if a leader is courageous is when you say, okay, you we, we accept you to be the leader, then in a certain extent our fate, to a certain extent our fate is in your hands. And if you're not willing and able to make those tough decisions for the good of the enterprise, we're all screwed, kind of, you know. So right. we know people. We really want to know that our leaders are willing to be courageous, and it's it is making tough decisions with limited, you know, information, and it's also being willing. And, and in some ways, this is the most important thing. People need to look at you as a leader and see: Are you willing to make decisions that are uncomfortable for you personally? Right. That either might put you at risk, or that's something that you don't like to do, because that's an immediate indication that the good of the enterprise is more important to you than your personal comfort, which people need to see in a leader. And then that goes to, will you apologize when you make a mistake? Will you take full responsibility for having right. done something badly? People really need to see that in leaders before they'll give them their allegiance. Right. I think that that's, that's a really, really good point. And, you know, when I saw the word risk, Erica, I thought about um, in my own industry, which is the travel industry, I have seen the difference in the the companies that had been the leaders in the industry when I first got into the industry were all privately held. And they went through phases of becoming public, and then uh, most of them got taken back private uh, through private equity. And I saw a real squelching of risk, Um, Mm. personal risk, personal courage that all of a sudden – uh, they weren't willing to risk anymore because there there was a risk-averse culture on Wall Street or in the boardroom uh, of the company or, you know, with their private equity owners. What have you seen um, uh, as it relates to a willingness to be courageous and to step out and to say what's unpopular? You know, it's a, it's a great uh, point. And what I've seen, I mean, I just, the reactions I've seen are all over the map. It, interestingly, the weird economic times over this last three or four years has made some people more risk-averse and some people more willing to take risks. But when to take smart risks, to be courageous in this way, is almost always a good idea. There's a wonderful story, and it's true, actually. In the early uh, 20th century, 
the two, and I think I have the names right. I, I, I certainly have the shape of the story right. I don't have the names right. But the two uh, most, the two biggest American cereal companies were, I believe, Kellogg and Post. And um, they were kind of running neck and neck. And then the uh, Depression came, the 30s. And Post just sort of went risk-averse. They really just hunkered down, cut everything, cut all their expenses, and just tried to sort of make it through. They reacted in a really sort of non-courageous way. Kellogg said, okay, this is, we're really going to take a shot here. And they cut, you know, they, they got as lean as they could, but they said, we are going to invest in some R&D, some new product lines, and some marketing. And so they made smart, risky, but smart investments, and they became, you know, they grew quite a bit. And they have, and even now, 70 years later, they're still a bigger company. They, they made some difficult, risky decisions in a tough economic time that had served them for 70 years. And I just love that story because I feel like, and, and then there was a, I, I first found that out as I was writing a blog post about two years ago about companies that had come out of the recession better. And, and this was a pattern that the companies that had made some smart investments and really focused on how to keep you know, moving forward in these tough times, with almost without exception, had done better. Interesting. Yeah. So let's let's move on to the next one because you know as I read through this list, this is the one you you can't declare yourself to be wise. <laughs> you cannot declare yourself to be wise. I remember yeah. when uh, when my oldest sister was was little, uh, you know, she would stand in front of the mirror and say to my mom, "Mommy, aren't I pretty?" And my mother would say, "Yes, honey, but you need to wait for other people to tell you." And I think being wise is one of those things. This is the one I always wanted people to mm. say, "Oh, isn't she wise?" Mm. So that that's my standing in front of the mirror story. So I've I've now disclosed that to the world. But that's you know, it's not not something that you you can uh, just. No, I think that's a really good point. It's the thing that really other people see in you. And and the reason I've, I've come to believe that this is so important for followers to see in their leaders is because that that quality of wisdom, which is really getting curious, being objective, sort of seeing the patterns in situations and experiences, learning from your experiences, sharing those learnings, really thinking about and working to make the moral and right decision by your life, all these things, that when when... When followers see those, in a, those things in a leader, they, the reaction is this person will give the time and thought to important decisions that they deserve. This person will not be superficial. They'll not, they'll not be reactive or whimsical or they'll really, you know, our, our fate, again, is in this person's hand to a certain extent and we want to know that they're taking that seriously. And I think that's why wisdom is so important to people. Right, and and I, I love when you talk about being curious. Um, I I always use a term when I'm looking uh, for people to work with me that I, I like people who are intellectually curious. Um, Absolutely. In fact, I, I I have. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say who read and and who go outside of their own industry and experience, um, and and try to take information and and apply it to you know, challenges that they're facing. Exactly. And even who people who get curious about day-to-day things. I, I, um, I uh, as you know, I blog at Forbes. I've blogged at Forbes for the last couple of years, and, and uh, occasionally I'll do a, a post that's sort of 10 quotes from somebody. And the most recent one I did a couple of days ago was 
10 quotes from Eleanor Roosevelt, who I love and is such an admirable, amazing person and leader. And one of her quotes, one of the things she said was, um, if, 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 for, if a ba- mother had a baby in the cradle and could have a fairy godmother asking what quality that child wanted, I would think the best gift to give would be curiosity. And I love that, and I really think it's right. I feel like if you're curious, if you're if, if you retain that curiosity that we all have as little kids, or if you reignite it as an adult, it will serve you so well because curiosity is like X-ray vision. It really allows you to see into things rather than just assuming that you know. Oh yeah, yeah, I've done this every day. I know how it works. To really get curious about well, why is that happening, and why is that person reacting that way, and why am I reacting that way, and how does that thing work? You know, that it just takes you. I think it's the core of genius, besides being the core of wisdom. It really takes you far. And I, I have to tell you, this is a, a little funny. Um, it, I, I am now 55, and my eyesight, even with bifocal contacts, is way less than I wish it would be without reading glasses. And the last characteristic under the chapter on being wise uh, says, act based on your sense of right. And when I looked at it, I saw sense of flight. And I and I actually thought, well, that would be fitting as well with the cover of the book and, and this whole issue of if you're in a place where you know you shouldn't be, you actually should fly. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to number seven because this this is one that is near and dear to my heart. Um, uh, in fact, I was telling my husband uh, yesterday he had done something that um, proved to me why I love him so much, and, mm-hmm. and that is he has always been so, so generous. And it, mm-hmm. it's funny because if you uh, asked him for money just straight out, he would immediately say no. But... <laughs> You know, when when faced with helping someone solve a problem, he is the first one to say, "Oh, you know, let's let's just do this and let's let's just give." And well, and that's I've a been, wonderful. Sorry, that's a wonderful example because it often over the last couple of years, you know, since the economy's been weird, when we when we've said this, when we've explained these characteristics to leaders, and we've come to generosity, they've gone, "Well, but times are tough." And and the thing is, the core of generosity has nothing to do with money, as you just pointed out right. with your husband. But what what people really want is generosity of spirit. They want, again, if you yes. put it back in historical times, if we're, you know, a little tribe existing a thousand years ago and the leader finds a place where there are a lot of fish, we want those fish to get shared, you know. If the leader knows where to go to get out of the cold, we want him or her to tell us that, you know. So it's sharing what you have. That's that's what generosity in a, leadership, in a leader is. And often, more Far more often than not, it's mental and emotional versus physical. We want leaders who are generous with credit and praise and power and authority right. and belief and responsibility. Those are the things that we're really looking for. Right, right. And, you know, I think it it is, uh, you're right, at this particular point in time when money has been so tight, people think about uh, generosity being tied to money. And, yeah. you know, it's interesting, and I, I'm sure you found this in, in your other practices that focus on, you know, keeping the employee base happy. Uh, you know, money is quite often not at the top of the list. of, of Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All the, all the research shows that money is almost never at the top of the list. As long as people have a living wage and feel like they're being paid reasonably fairly, things like, uh, you know, support from their manager, feedback as to how they're doing, uh, some kind of career path, acknowledgement of their contributions, 
those are much more important to people, and those are all about generosity. Right, right. So the next one is trustworthy. Mm. And, and that's really I the think we've part. all been in a situation where where someone has done something uh, that causes us to lose trust, and and we don't want to yeah. be the one in those shoes who, you know, either on purpose or. I think even worse when you do it and you don't even know you've done something that has caused someone to doubt uh, that you're trusting. You know, that, that's a really good point, Chicky, because often when I when we work with this, this particular attribute in leaders and they get, we have an assessment, we have a multi-rater assessment that you can, uh, that we developed and got validated and you can uh, give questionnaires to your followers and see what, what you get back. And people are really appalled sometimes when they get rated not so high on trustworthiness and what we always say to them is, look, it's not, they don't, people aren't saying you're a liar or they're not saying right. that you're a snake. What they're, often it's pretty small things. Like, I'll give you a great, for instance, I was working with a guy a couple months ago who got not a great score on trustworthiness. He was really upset. And I said, okay, let's, let's look at some possible examples. Do you ever, someone, let's say someone comes into your office and they have some great idea. And you go, oh, that's a great idea. We'll definitely pursue that. And then someone else comes into your office and says an idea which is mutually exclusive to the first one. You actually couldn't do both of them, and you say, that's a great idea. Let's pursue it. And he kind of laughed. He said, yeah, I do that pretty often, but I'm just trying not to demoralize them. And I said, okay, the problem is they compare notes afterwards, and right. it sounds like you must be lying to one or the other. It, 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 it compromises your trustworthiness, right? Do you ever talk about people to third parties? Yes, I do. Okay, that compromises your trustworthiness. Do you ever, out of a burst of enthusiasm, say you're going to do something and then don't do it and never tell people why? Okay, that comes across as untrustworthy. So there are a lot of habits of action that we just think of as either enthusiasm or we don't want to hurt people's feelings or whatever that come across as untrustworthy. So you really have to be very accurate in your assessment of yourself to see whether or not you're coming across as a trustworthy leader. Right, right. And, you know, it's funny, uh, and I, I've shared this story on, on the show before. Um, my my best friend uh, in, in at church and her husband were asked to speak about integrity one Sunday morning when mm. our pastor was gone. And they stood up and they, they listed like ten things that made up integrity. And one of the things that they included <laughs> in integrity was being on time. Yeah. And it was like a slap in the face to me because yeah. I, you know, I grew up, uh, my parents were never on time, and it, it wasn't valued in our household. And so uh, I, I really have to struggle with it now to make myself talk that, That's a great example, Chickie, and oh. that's exactly what I'm talking about, these, just these little habits of behavior. And we don't, because when people, I was just talking about this with a group yesterday, who this is a, an executive group who tend not to be on time for meetings, and one of the guys in the group, one of the ones who's always on time, he says, you know, I don't think you guys realize this, but when you drift in 10 or 15 minutes late for a meeting, it feels really disrespectful. You have not kept your commitment to me, and it feels like you're saying your time is more important than mine. And these other two people were just applauded. They were like, I had no idea. So this is, this is exactly what I'm talking about, that when people look to leaders, trustworthy is so foundational, you know, because you want to know that you can rely on your leaders. And what you look to, what you look to, to see whether or not they are reliable are quite often these little daily things. Are they on time? Do they do what they say they're going to do? If they can't, do they tell us what happened and what they're going to do instead? You know, these kinds of things. Exactly. exactly. It's a great example. I completely agree. 
So uh, tell me about number nine, Friends for the Journey. Well, if you if you go back to thinking about these stories, the, the, the kid who gets to be the king always has help. He never does it alone. In these stories, there's always, almost always, there's usually a wizard of some kind, some kind of shaman or wizard who shows up and has some skills or some insight or some powers that this kid needs. Right, we just saw the Hobbit a, a week ago. Exactly. There's always a Gandalf. There's always somebody who, if you if you are a good leader, shows up to help. There's that first person. Then there's always uh, a well-wisher. There's always someone who really has your back. Often in these stories, it's the father who really sees this kid's power or the mother and, and is just just there for them. It kind of loves them unconditionally. And then usually there's also what I've come to call a wild card. There's somebody in my little friend's story in the book, it's these small men, this little race of small men who end up helping the kid get to the top of the mountain to rescue the princess. But the wild cards are interesting because the, the only way you can find them is just by being a good leader and just being inclusive in your leadership. And then these this person, and if I put it into modern times, sometimes it's some weird person that everybody else thinks is a little sketchy, you know, the kind of IT curmudgeon that never comes out of his office right. or you know. And it's like, oh, that person knows this how to run the software that's essential to our success that nobody else knows. You know, so these wild cards are people who may seem odd, but if you stay wise and curious and open, they will be revealed to have something that nobody else has that you need. And and the reason I wrote this chapter is because I, I wanted people to understand that it is important to be a strong leader, to be far-sighted, passionate, courageous, wise, generous, and trustworthy. And it's as important to be helpable, to be supportable, as it is to be helpful and supportive. And so um, by kind of saying, here are three kinds of help that tend to be there and show up for you, right. if you look for it, and if you're humble enough in a way to ask to be helped. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think if they've picked up this book, uh, they've already uh, demonstrated uh, a level of humility in knowing that they need to assess where they are. And and, and Chapter 10 is really about writing your own tale and, and yeah. seeing where you fit in all of this. And I, I love how, again, you make it so practical and and encourage people to apply all of this to their own situation, as, as people do as they're reading these books anyway. Um, I oh, tend to read you. books with a highlighter, uh, but I, again, yeah, I that's just, great. I applaud you for how how you force that. If they haven't done it uh, all the way through the book, you bring them around to that. Um, so, Erica, just in the couple of minutes we have left, um, what what is your message uh, to people who uh, perhaps have been in a leadership position and have lost their passion or people who uh, have been overlooked time and time again for promotion and you know, need to look at whether they are seen as, as that red bird out front yeah. or, or that they have the potential. That's, I'll pick up from that lesson because that, that I think is the core message of this book and I really, really believe in this and I, I operate this way in my practice is that leadership is developable. You know, when I, as I do interviews about this book and just about leadership in general, people usually ask me some version of are leaders born or are they made? And I kind of say, well, both, because like most things, capability for leadership exists along a bell curve. So there are some people who are just naturally wonderful leaders, have these qualities, have the capability to be a leader. You just kind of get out of their way and give them the resources, and they'll be fabulous. And there are some people who are not cut out to be leaders. They don't like it. They're not good at it. Right. They're kind of down at the end of the bell curve. They should do other stuff. You know, great, fine. Right. You have other skills and gifts. 
But for most of us, most of us live in the middle of that bell curve somewhere, and we can get better. Okay leaders can become very, very good leaders, in some cases great leaders. And what it requires is accurate self-awareness. You have to be willing to look at yourself accurately and clearly and not, as you just said a minute ago, not you know think, oh, well, I'm a great leader if other people don't think so. You have to get accurate in your self-awareness. <laughs> and then you have right. to be open to learning. And, and learning can be tough because you have to change behaviors. And there's a kind of disequilibrium that comes from behaving in new ways. And so if you are willing to be accurate in your self-awareness and willing to come with the you know, have the discomfort that can come with learning, you can get to be a really good leader. That's my belief. Well, Erica, thank you so much for sharing with oh, us. Oh, you're so and, welcome. And uh, it has been just such a delight to reconnect with you. It's been a long time. Yes. Um, but we actually have a much larger audience than we did uh, when we were together before. Uh, the Executive Girlfriends Group list has has grown to over 700 women uh, oh, wonderful. And, uh, but more important, uh, we started uh, publishing the show on Blog Talk Radio, and, and we have thousands uh, oh, great. on Blog Talk Radio, and it, it's really been gratifying to watch how that has grown. And the unfortunate mm-hmm. thing about Blog Talk Radio, I mean, it's it, it's highly accessible, and it's uh, really easy for us, and we can publish to, to iTunes and uh, you know, easily promote it uh, over various groups and, and uh, social media, but we don't know who our audience is, so yeah, um, yeah. that that's a little uh, problematic. But uh, but we're grateful for those of you who do come and listen to this show, and uh, uh, we are just excited, um, you know, to have the caliber of, of uh, authors and, and consultants and executives that we get on this show, and I, I'm just so so grateful for that. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm, you know, that makes me happy that more people will hear about the book and maybe get get some good from it. Well, terrific. And again, the book is leading, so people will follow. There is no subtitle, but there is a beautiful <laughs> flock of birds that you will want to see, and. Uh, it can be uh, purchased through uh, Amazon and, and any other major uh, bookseller. For those who are Executive Girlfriends Group members, we do have it on the Executive Girlfriends Group uh, book club site, uh, so you can uh, order it there. I suspect it's also available on Kindle. Is that right, Eric? Indeed. Kindle and Nook, in fact. Oh, terrific. Okay. Yeah, we're we're an Apple household, so I don't I don't tend to think <laughs> about all of these other platforms. And I I'm an Amazon uh, junkie. <laughs> my husband uh, threatens to take away my Amazon Prime account. <laughs> it, it seems like I order daily. But Erica, I uh, again thank you so much for coming back. And oh, uh, for so those awesome. of you who are listening to the show today. If you'd like to know more about the Executive Girlfriends Group, you can go to executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next Friday at noon. And, uh, Erica, I'm going to just take it off of uh, record uh, just so that we can uh, say our goodbyes. Okay. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.